Today's guest is the founding partner of FJ Labs. FJ Labs invests in ambitious founders solving big problems. They're a stage agnostic consumer facing fund, headquartered in New York City. Join Rami in welcoming him to the show. If you have any questions for our guest today, please leave them in the comments section below. Also, if you'd like to get more data on any of our guests, please download the Taking You to the Top app from our website. That being said, we hope you enjoy today's episode. Welcome to another episode of Taking You to the Top. In this podcast, Rami spends time speaking with founders and CEOs from across the globe and asks them specific questions to learn exactly how they built and launched their businesses. So sit back, relax, and get ready to learn. Are you ready to take it to the top? All right, Fabrice, welcome to episode number 31 of Taking You to the Top. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. So Fabrice, if you could get us started by introducing yourself and tell us uh, where you're from, uh, where you started your journey, and how that led you to founding your company. So I'm... uh... French originally, though I live in the U.S., a tech entrepreneur and investor. I've been uh, doing that for the last 22 years. Uh, as I mentioned, I'm originally from uh, Nice in France. And okay. you know, the journey started probably through randomness. Uh, at, the, at the tender age of 10 back in 1984, I was given my first computer, and um, it was love at first click. I immediately <laughs> fell in love with the, 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 the freedom, creativity, and flexibility that computers gave you and programming gave you. And in a way, I was a child of the computer revolution. And it led, and, and at that time, I never imagined that what was really a hobby would become a multi-billion dollar business. But right. as time went by, when I went to Princeton um, for college, I saw the, the first the rise of PBSs and the beginning of the internet with like things like IRC and Gopher and ultimately Mosaic and Netscape. And I realized I was at the right time, at the right place, with the right skills, and that this was definitely where my upcoming future economic and personal destiny was going to be. And as a child, and as a, I, I grew up like admiring Bill Gates and Steve Jobs, and I wanted to follow in their uh-huh. footsteps. Now. I didn't start directly in tech entrepreneurship because I graduated Princeton, top of my class, but I was like 21, shy, never really worked with people. And I figured if I build something on my own, probably would fail. And so I went to McKinsey and Company, the management consultancy, and I felt it was like kind of business school, except they pay you. And I went there for two years and learned what I felt I had to learn. And then at 23 and 98, I'm like, okay, I'm now ready. And uh, I went on and... uh, built my first startup and uh, it's been uh, you know an amazing adventure ever since wow okay so that first startup is not your current company or no so my first startup um, was an eBay type site for Europe um, called okay. Auckland which uh, um, I grew to over 100 employees raised like 60 million in venture money but grew into one of the top three auction sites in Europe out of that also helped build and eBay for Latin America called Deremate, providing them the business plan and technology. I sold it in uh, 2000. And in 2001, I went back to the US. At that point, I was based in Paris for that first startup. 
and I build a big mobile content company called Zingy. And that company was selling ringtones and mobile games in the pre-smartphone era. And it went from a million in revenues in 02 to five in 03 to 50 in 04 to 200 in 05. So one to 200 million in revenues in four years after frankly a very difficult start where it was really impossible to raise money in 2001. So I invested every last money I had. I ended up like missing payroll 27 times. The borrowing a hundred thousand my credit cards, like sleeping on the couch at the office, you know, not even afford coffee, uh, right. but managed to grab victory from the jaws of defeat by doing it the old fashioned way, becoming profitable and became profitable on August 16, 2003. They will remember forever. And from okay. then on, it became a very big success. So I sold it for 80 million cash in uh, the summer of 04. I stayed on a CEO for 18 months. And um, in left in late 2005 to go back to my first love, which was marketplaces and, and building intermediaries between buyers and sellers of everything and anything. And at that point in time, I'd come across uh, Craigslist and I really liked the concept, except that I thought I could do it a lot better. And so yeah. build a company called OLX, uh, which in yeah. the Middle East is called Dubizzle, in fact, uh, especially oh, wow. in the UAE, where it's very big, okay. um, which became, uh, it took you know, many years and, and a lot of venture capital, but today it's uh, 5,000 employees in 30 countries. It's over 350 million unique visitors a month. And it's the largest class size site in the world with a dominant position in Brazil and all of Latin America and India, Pakistan and most of Southeast Asia and Russia, Poland, Romania, Ukraine and all of Eastern Europe and of course in the UAE and, and a big chunk uh, of the region. Um, mostly operating under the OLX brands that we also use at Vito in Russia and Dubizzle in the Middle East. And Incredible. in 2013, I, I, I left the company as uh -huh. CEO. And, and at that point, I'd already been a very prolific investor, I guess. I started angel investing from the very beginning of my entrepreneurial journey because other entrepreneurs, by virtue of me being visible in the public facing consumer internet CEO, would start asking for money and advice. And so started investing, frankly, from the very beginning, back in 98. And by 2013, I already had over 100 angel investments. And I realized I liked building companies, I liked investing companies. And so I created a structure that ultimately became FJ Labs, which is the startup studio and venture fund that I operate today, which invests in about 100 companies every year and builds one or two companies every year. Fantastic. So FJ Labs, uh, sorry, you, you said it was founded last year? Well, the, the, the genesis of it really came from 2013, but officially right. FJ Labs was created in January 2016. And 16, so it's okay. Yeah, it's a four-year-old fund, but but already a lot of the elements and the people and the core of uh, the team that became FJ Labs were in place before then. It just didn't have an official legal structure, but the, the legal entity and the first outside capital that we raised was created in um, January 2016. And um, I guess today we're four years in, there's uh, 32 of us in, in the company. We've raised 225 million of external capital. We've deployed like 270 million of which 100 million is our own personal money. And okay. um, yeah, it's doing really well being a seed, uh, pre-seed series A angel investor or investor in t marketplace startups all around the world uh, with a focus in the US and with a specificity on marketplaces. And we're investors in everything from, I mean, back in the day, we we're in Alibaba and Uber and Airbnb, right. but 
you know, Instacart and Coupang and vertical food delivery marketplaces like Slice or Chabas, like the companies like Vinted, which is a marketplace for fashion. But in the portfolio today, we have over 600 companies. Uh, we've wow. had over 175 exits. Uh, today, we've made uh, a 62% realized IRR on these exits uh, since the very beginning of, of our, our time, including all the losses we've had. And we've built about that 10 companies um, in the last uh, seven years. Okay. Um, so I guess you've sort of answered whether the company is bootstrapped or raised capital. Um, so well, well, not really, because <laughs> yes, we've raised capital, but the path to raising capital was not simple. You know, I, I when I when I left, and that's that's the difference in the time period between 2013 and 2016. When I left OLX, I'd already made over 100 angel investments, I'd already been very successful, and it was okay. only with personal capital. And I'm like, oh given the track record, it's going to be very easy to raise money. The thing is, the approach we take at FJ Labs, where we don't lead, we don't take board seats, we we, we do very minimal due diligence, we invest in all industries, all geographies, essentially all stages, even though there's one specificity, which is marketplaces, did not resonate with investors. And so when we talk to institutional investors, you know, pension funds, university endowments, they they didn't like the idea. And and I thought with my track record, which was already very successful, it'd be easy to raise, but it was really hard to raise. And that's why, frankly, for the first three years, but frankly, the first, in a way, 16 years, given that I started deploying personal capital in 98, it was all bootstrapped. And okay. as we started scaling and becoming more visible, we finally got approached by a strategic that said, hey, we'd love, we'd like a, we'd like to, a, a vision or a, a, a looking glass into what's going on in marketplaces in the US. And that led to our, our first investor, which is uh, a big Norwegian telco called uh, Telenor, which invested uh, $50 million okay. back in January 2016 um, alongside us. And when we finished deploying the capital in late 2017 for the next fund, other potential LPs who are interested in marketplaces came along. But it, it was hard to raise extra capital and it was frankly bootstrapped for the mo- most of our history. And even today, 40% of the capital deployed has been personal capital. Okay, and would you say that you actually require that raise or you could have done without it? So we could have done without it. it, it the, the only thing it changes check sizes and exactly. and helping and, and, and frankly helping cover our costs, right? The the it's it was beneficial to us because instead of being a small five person team or six person team uh, doing everything, now we have thirty two people, which allows us to be more thoughtful, do more research, uh, protect your position when there are downsides, et cetera. So it's beneficial. I mean, a team that size, we have a four to five million a year cost structure. And back in the day when we didn't have a fund, we basically were paying the cost structure out of our, our out of profits, which, so it made sense, but it's actually better if we can use the fees to cover costs more or less break even. And so it allows us to do our job better and without spending a disproportionate amount of time. So it wasn't required, but it's definitely a nice to have. Okay. And these 32, um, if you wouldn't mind, like, what's the breakdown of these uh, 32 employees? Are they, how are they spread out? Sure. So we, we are, we have two main operational features. One is we're a venture fund, and that's actually pretty uh, the smaller part of the team. So uh, with my so is my co-founder Jose Marin and myself. That's two of us. Then we have two 
people who co-head the investment side uh, and the venture side of the operations. And then b below them, we have um, one, um, we have a, a one associate. And, th and that's basically it from the front office, if you want, of that operation. On the other okay. side, every year we build uh, one or two new startups de novo. And we have a, pro a program where we go to the top five business schools in the US, uh, mm -hmm. Harvard, Stanford, MIT, Columbia, and Wharton. We interview 250 of the best students there in we, the first years, and we hire them full-time during their summer between the first and second year. And they okay. half that summer, we teach them venture capital. Half that summer, we put them in an early-stage startup so they know what it's like. They join us 15, 20 hours a week their second year in order to help us uh, filter in the inbound deal flow and see what's going on. And once they graduate, they become full-time entrepreneurs and residents. And these entrepreneurs and residents eventually, and we, we don't really have a set timeline, find ideas that we want to build together with them. And then they become founders of the companies we built with them. And so right now on that side, of the fence we have two apprentices so the people that are currently in business school and we have like four eirs uh entrepreneurs and residents that are looking to build ideas actually no five and um that are in the team and then the rest of the team is the back office team so we have a cfo a head of operations an analyst and then we have um, an office manager and five assistants we have five virtual assistants based in the philippines who who work with us maybe even six right now and 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 frankly do everything from managing or or or, or agendas to uh assigning the deals that are coming in and 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 updating the the files uh in our deal flow management uh, tracker says tracking system etc sure i mean that sounds so interesting i mean especially the part where you mentioned uh going to the top business schools and selecting students to come over summer I mean, is it only those top five business schools or do you it's make- It's only those top five because we're, we only need two people, frankly. We don't, we're, the part of building a company every year, we're super involved. We, we come up with the idea, we help recruit the team, we raise the funds, we help operationally with whatever the founders don't have from an experience perspective, whether it's a product or technology. And that requires a, a, a huge amount of time. So that part of the sure. business is not scalable. And so we can be doing it with like five companies a year. It's really my partner takes one, I take the other, and we're we're hands-on for the first year or until the Series A, essentially. And so that's why it doesn't make sense to go to more than these five business schools and, yeah. and, and to take more than two people. And, and it's already a huge amount of work to interview 200, 250 people. And we use business schools really because it's it's a filter for people that are hardworking, motivated, and smart. But the people we take, their, their background is typically they've been product managers or 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 city managers at like uber or airbnb or instacart they, they have tech experience at a larger or late stage startup and now they want to go and do it on their own but they 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 it's not just it's not bankers and consultants with no tech background uh, okay. typically they have an operational background all right got it um when you when you started fj labs um well I want to ask this question, but if you could try and put aside your network, if you, let's say you didn't have a network and you yep. wanted to use a marketing channel or, I mean, how would you go about getting your first customer? Well, so if you think of what a venture fund's customer is, in our case, it's uh, startups who want to raise money. And right. 
And if you look at the way most venture funds are, are structured, their associates spend all of their time networking, identifying companies that they could potentially invest in, going to tech meetups, et cetera. And in a way, we're very privileged that we don't need to do that. So I, I would say most, if I look at the way most venture funds do this, they, they have a, a data analytics team that is going to like run scripts on LinkedIn to see which companies are hiring the most and growing the fastest from an employee camp perspective and then reaching out of them to see if they would be a potential match. That's one category. And the other category, and that's what a lot of the junior members of the fund would do. And the other category is going to all the tech meetups and conferences, et cetera, to meet companies that they would deem to be interesting. And then the last full category would probably be like scouring the tech news to see companies that, again, are interesting for them to reach out to. And so most of their deal flow would come from a process, I guess we would call outbound, where they reach out of the companies. Sure. Because I've been an entrepreneur and operator, in marketplace businesses, an investor for the last 22 years, we're a very in a very privileged position because I've built a brand around marketplaces. And so most deals come to us. Uh, the way we operate is every week we get about 100 deals and our job, they're randomly assigned a team member and our job is to evaluate whether or not they're compelling. And of the 100 deals, we take calls with like 40 or 50 entrepreneurs and we end up investing in two companies a week on average. And and so we don't use a, we don't do any of the ad-bound work that most people do because we build a brand. So my recommendation of someone who's building a venture fund would be use your expertise and specificity to make sure that the deal flow comes to you. And, and, and it could be different specificity, right? Like if you're in Saudi, I don't know how many how many venture funds are in Saudi Arabia, but perhaps not that many, in which case, by default, you become, the deals come, to, if you're known as the investor who will okay, invest yeah. in that region, the deals come to you. So we, we, we co-invest with a fund in, in Pakistan. They see all the best deals in Pakistan. And so their specificity is geographic. For some people, the specificity may be B2B SaaS. For some people, so a category. Um, sure. it, it really depends, but I would say find an edge such that the best deals in the category that you know the, best, you know the most about come to you automatically. Okay, got it. Um, Fabrice, this next section is about problems that can be solved. So over the course of the last few weeks, what would you say has been your most present problem? And how do you go about solving that? So if you look at the life uh, the, that, that I, the job I lead today, it's highly diverse in terms of the, the work that needs to be done. Um, the work, I, I would pull it into in different categories. There's a managing the internal team. There's uh, evaluating all the inbound deal flows. So that requires taking a lot of calls with, with entrepreneurs, either a first call or a second call to decide whether to invest. There's a weekly investment committee meeting to evaluate whether or not we want to invest in it, review the 50 startups from last week that we took calls with. Then there's the operational meetings with the companies in the portfolio that we're helping build. Um, uh -huh. There's meetings every every eight weeks. We talk to about 100 venture capitalists to share deal flow because in a way we don't really compete with them. We write small checks alongside them and they want us on on board so we can bring them our best deals when they go to their round and, and we can bring our expertise in marketplaces. And, and so it's highly diverse. Plus every day I get like a couple hundred emails. And, yeah. and so I'd say the biggest, there, there's no one 
overarching problem that I'm facing in general, other than frankly, lack of time, right? Like uh, a typical day includes like eight meetings, 10 meetings, uh, hundreds of emails. And, and so the, the, I say that the, the main recommendation or process improvement, I, I think it's a lot, a lot to do with process improvement, which mean, and I think a lot, you can execute and do a lot more than you can as long as you operate efficiently. And so to me, operating efficiently means monotasking, so not doing multiple things at the same time. So turn off all the notifications on, on your phone, like nothing should vibrate, nothing should ring. When you get emails, nothing should point out that you got emails and you allocate your time. So you schedule your time, whether it's uh, free time or, 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 or work time such that you, you're focused on the task at hand and you have bring maximum productivity to that task. So maybe you'll schedule one hour of emails from nine to 10, but don't do emails while you're doing something else. It, it's humans think they can do multiple things at the same time. Well, but the reality is not. And, and I would say my main recommendations would be structure your time probably in 30 minute increments. Don't have any notifications the and and outsource as much as you can and it's something we do very well at FHA Labs we as I said we have these virtual assistants in the Philippines who manage or calendar who we I use people online to do research to help uh to create videos to create my personal photo albums uh and and these things cost less than you might think uh the full-time assistant of the Philippines is like 1300 a month and and in, in my personal life, I also, I mean, by that, I'm more privileged position from that perspective, but I also have an estate manager and chef and, and outsource all the things in my daily life that I don't like doing. And so you should be allocating your time to the things that you love or the things that you're the most productive at and outsource everything else. So in, in a way, it's like just the traditional Ricardian division of labor theory taken to its, to its extreme. I mean, isn't that also similar to the, I think it's called the Pomodoro technique or method yeah i mean and and tim ferris in the four-hour work week refers yeah. to it a lot like uh, and, and upwork is genius for that so we, i use upwork for everything as i said from like making videos to editing photo albums to doing online research to creating graphics to finding developers for little projects to you name it perfect i was just going to ask which platform you used but you've answered that Thank yeah upwork, upwork is i mean i don't love it ideally I would love a, a, a platform where I could say, I need this done. And they would say, this is the cost. This is the person you're done. And I wouldn't need to go and do all the filtering. Um, yeah. And and this exists for higher value items, uh, uh, but it's not the little programs or, or issues I need on a daily basis. And so it requires a fair amount of filtering, uh, which is not ideal, but it, but it's still effective. And it's effective because it works across many different categories. You know, I needed, I wanted to do an analysis of the golf market uh-huh. and I want to do an analysis of um, the used trucking market. And obviously it's not the same people that have expertise and background in these categories. And so sure. it was easier on, it was Upwork is horizontal and broad enough that you can find people for everything. Exactly. Um, So Fabrice, if you don't mind, we can wrap up with the famous five. Okay. So the famous five. (laughs) Number one, what's your favorite business book? So I don't read many business books. I, I love books in general. I read 50 to 100 books a year. The okay. the, the business books, I, I don't know. I find them blind. I, I think you get a lot of uh, 
gestalt from reading a lot and knowing a lot of a lot of different pop topics and you can you can draw analogies and so i i'd say i'm more partial to reading things like sapiens or or biographies of people like alexander hamilton by brian Chernow, or frankly even science fiction etc in, in terms of business books per se and entrepreneurship books i don't know like i i, I zero to one by peter thiel is nice and i also like uh um, a lot of the tricks and tips in, in Tim Ferriss's uh, for our work week, but do I'm not even sure they fall in the category of business books. So I, I, I guess my recommendation would be don't read business books. Read, <laughs> read, read, read fiction and nonfiction that is uh, that stimulates your mind and 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 pushes your intellectual curiosity. Sure. All right. Um, number two, is there a CEO you're following or studying? Not really. Uh, the, I, I, as a kid, I, I, I had aspirational entrepreneurs that I looked up to and followed, and 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 which were Bill Gates and Steve Jobs. These days, it, frankly, it's interesting to see the wh- how the different leaders of the top tech company, the top tech companies, are are navigating the world we're in, and and I think the one who's impressed me the most for the last like 30, 40 years, probably Jeff Bezos, because the, it was deliberate, right? Like if you if you if you look at it. He started saying, I'm doing books because it's a long tail. I'm going to Seattle because I want to be next to Ingram, the biggest, uh, uh, the biggest book distributor. But I, I will then launch other categories and so on. So it was all deliberate, whereas if everything from Facebook to Google, there was a huge amount of luck and serendipity in, in, right. in the way these businesses were built, though the founders and were good enough to adapt to it when they saw something that worked. So, But I don't really follow, per se. I don't really sure. look. You know, so it's, I'm not sure I'm following or studying, especially since the the problems people face are very different and 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 not necessarily applicable. Like what someone is facing in a hundred billion or plus company, the problems and the issues they have are so fundamentally different from the problems we face and the companies we're creating, where it's like five people in a garage that it, it's not all that useful. And the world we live in is so much resource constrained. You know, when we raise our pre-seed round, we have like a million bucks. When we raise our seed round, we have three million bucks. It, it, it's very different. We're not in a position to throw money at problems. And so the, I'm not sure there's a someone that's worth like, oh, that's the model that we, be, we should be aspiring to. Sure. Okay. Um, and number three, what's your favorite online tool for growing your business? I don't, I, you know, these questions are, I don't know, like the, the there's no, <laughs> the answer is it depends, right? Like figure out what is the best customer acquisition channel for you. If you're a consumer facing and very, very well be Google or, Google or Facebook paid advertising, it may very well be, if you're viral and you have an end greater than one, then it's just finding the viral loop. If you're catering to, to businesses, it may be an online or offline sales team. Um, I suppose the answer, which is true to many things, is it depends and just find the best one for you. All right. Um, Number four, if you could give your 20-year-old self a piece of advice, what would it be? Or what did you wish you knew when you were 20? You know, if I look back at when I was 20, the... I thought I knew everything, right? I, 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 and 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 I over-indexed intelligence and maybe under-indexed like emotional intelligence, working with people, being social, and, and, and a more broad diversity of interests rather than purely intellectual interests. But 
would I change anything of the path that I've loved since then to get to where I am today? And I think the answer is no. Uh, the, 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 the trials and tribulations um, lead you to know, build the character and the metal that you need to be successful. And, and, and if, if things go too easily, you, you, you haven't earned them. You don't, they're not there. I don't think you would have the same perspective. Like I, I almost made like $120 million when I was 24. And I think I would have been an, an insufferable, arrogant prick if, if that had happened. And so the fact that I had to eat humble pie and went from hero to zero, like cover every magazine and bankrupt was actually very useful in, 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 in moderating, uh, I guess my ego. And, and, and so I'm not sure I would change anything in the path. I think, or there were a lot of lessons that would have been useful to, to know. Yes. But I'm not sure I would have listened, right? Like, uh, I think right. young at that time I was arrogant. I thought I knew everything. And, and uh, the problem is if you know everything, uh, <laughs> which is like from a book perspective, you may know nothing else and, and you may not have life, uh, life experience. And so I'm, I'm not sure I would change anything. I, I really like the path I went through uh, the, and I definitely cannot complain uh, with the outcome where I am today. I'm really happy and fulfilled. And so, yeah. Fantastic. And the final question is how many hours of sleep do you get every night? The so I, I used to sleep very little and and very badly. Uh, when I built my first company at Auckland, I would go to bed at like one or two in the morning, get up at like five every day. Like and frankly, I could operate perfectly fine on three and a half, four hours a night of sleep. And and as a result, but I was so sleep deprived. I remember if I had anything like if you put me in a cab or I was sleeping, if I was waiting for someone to pick me up, I'd fall asleep on the floor and in, in the streets. You know, the <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so I was very efficient at finding sleep, and 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 I took it as a badge of honor to be to require very little sleep and work really hard. The thing is. I, I was overcompensating lack of experience with, with overwork. And but there are such things as diminishing marginal returns. And uh, the and the last few years, and I'm not a very good sleeper. I think I, I trained myself for so many years to sleep so little that that it's been hard for me to sleep more than like six hours a night. But after I read Matthew Walker's book uh, on why we sleep, yeah, right. it scared it, it, it's it, it scared the shit out of me. I was like, oh my God, I'm going to get dementia, cancer, and every all, a horrible disease. And frankly, you operate at less than ideal capacity if you're not well rested. Now, there's a fair amount of the science in, in why we sleep that's been debunked. And um, so I wouldn't, it, you don't need to take it as like the, the horror uh, book that it, that, it, that 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 is presented to be. That said, a lot of the tips and tricks in terms of cool your room to 67 degrees, don't consume caffeine post like essentially noon, don't consume alcohol because it decreases your sleep quality, even though it makes you it makes you sleepy, etc. Are all great advice, and I've been trying to uh, sleep seven to eight hours a night. Um, more or less successfully, I'm not the I'm still not the best sleeper, but I've definitely increased. I, I've definitely increased sleep quantity and sleep quality over the last year as I've come to realize its importance. And so the I would definitely recommend all entrepreneurs try to get as uh, effective night sleep as possible, the seven to eight hours, including uh, at least like an hour and a half of REM sleep and an hour and a half of deep sleep in that time period. Sure. Well, Fabrice, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been an absolute pleasure.
Thank you for having me. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye bye. Thanks for watching today's episode. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast on any of the available podcast platforms so you don't miss any upcoming episodes. If you have an extra minute, leaving a review would help us grow.